The Swinging Palm Trees podcast with Akin. We are by the Swinging Palm Trees where we talk about the quotes and the sayings that have had an impact in our lives. Be they cultural, philosophical, spiritual, or something you may have just made up, we'll talk about them. On today's episode, I have the unique privilege of talking to a honorary Nigerian by the name of Ram Selvarajan. Now, did I get that correct? Yeah, Selvarajan. Yes, that's correct. Excellent. And he is talking all the way from Canada in a particular area called, now, I may have got this wrong, so correct me if I'm wrong here, Mississauga. Yeah, you got that right. A lot of S's in there. Excellent. Well, Ram, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Akin, for having me. You know, it's been been wanting to uh, meet up with you, meet you, since I've been hearing a lot about you. And I said, hey, but, you know, at least uh, the, the stars aligned and we were able to meet. So question, could you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Where do I start, right? So, I mean, um, so I've been living in Canada for the last uh, 35 plus years, I would say almost coming up to almost 40 years, you could say that. Um, And, you know, I was born in Sri Lanka, went to Nigeria, um, lived with my parents. My uh, parents were uh, teachers in Nigeria. And that's how my, my connection to Nigeria came into being. Um, I went to Nigeria when I was seven and left when I was um, 17. So a good 10 solid years. Um, I lived in Ondo. So that was, um, you know, the southern part and then the northern part, uh, Sokoto, later on. Um, and I mean, I see pictures and stuff from Nigeria or comments from Nigeria um, that, you know, it's it's different. It's changed a different place, uh, right? Because uh, when I refer to people, that when I was in Niger- when my dad went to Nigeria, Nigeria had 12 states, and when we left, it had 19 states. Now I'm not even sure where what we are up to now. So it's different uh, things, right? So I, I, you sh- I should say, you know, when you said honorary Nigerian, I think the important thank you for saying that because people don't acknowledge uh, the when you grow up how that the culture that you grow up. Um, ingrains in you, especially when you are between the age that I went in, which was at seven to, uh, you know, 17. Those were my most memorable years, whether it be primary school, secondary school, or when I went to the polytechnic, right? So those are my memorable years. And those are the culture that we're immersed in. Like right now, in the world we live in, we're immersed by so many different TV channels and shows and stuff. And, you know, like we, we live in cosmopolitan areas now with cultures from around the world but when i was growing up in nigeria at um, seven you know there was very few expatriates or non-nigerians around you so we went to we were culturally immersed into the yoruba culture um in ondo when i moved to sokoto into the hausa flani culture right so you you're immersed into that and you learn that and you become that and that's the culture and values you absorb um I always have this fun stuff um, when, you know, when I go to uh, religious gatherings, because when I went to, in Ondo State, um, you know, the school I went to was an Anglican primary school, right? So we would have Bible classes. And so you would learn about Bible, although my my background is Hindu. um, And then when you go into, um, when I moved to Sokoto, it was a Muslim school. So you would have, uh, you know, Islamic classes, right? So you get these different things and you're immersed into this. And, it gave me the unique perspective to see that 
really we're not any different, even though our skin tones and religious things may be believed, but the ver- at the very core, um, us as human beings, we're the very same people, right? Uh, which is, I think, one of the most important things we need to learn about each other. First of all, may I just say respect to you, the way how you pronounce the word Yoruba. I just thought, yeah, this guy grew up in Nigeria. <laughs> Second of all, the fact that you went to a polytechnic in Nigeria. I never even right. had the chance to go to a polytechnic. I mean, you talk to some people there and ask them, do you know what a polytechnic is? They have no right. idea what it is. No idea. Yeah. A polytechnic. And you grew up in Ondo State, because, which is what well, which was formerly Oyo State, but right. now partitioned to Oyo and Oshun State. And you said you left when Nigeria had 12 states. Right. I left when they had 19 states. Right. I think the number now is, you know what, I have no idea. I but believe I it's about 30-something now. Probably. It yeah. probably yeah. is, uh, because Nigeria is quite a huge place. And then you also grew up in the north, in Sokoto State, which is like That's the right. furthest form out. Yeah. And I found very interesting what you said, that these, are your, these were the formative years of your life between the ages of right. seven and hmm. 17. So from the age of 17, where next did you move to? So I moved. So at 17, I moved over to Canada, right? This is, and this was a big culture shock. So when I came to Canada, this gave me the opportunity to interact more with my own people, Tamil people who were coming in as refugees from Sri Lanka at that time. And it was funny because here is this Sri Lankan Tamil guy, right? Um, you know, the people that came to Canada from Sri Lanka directly uh, were not very fluent in English, right? So they didn't have, um, so they were learning English, though they were struggling adapting to a whole new country. Whereas I was coming in as having fluency in English, but my fluency in English was very African. Like you would think I'm, what is this guy? Like it's not making sense because I was speaking English for the Tamil guys. This guy knows English. For the white guys, this, what is this guy speaking? Because, you know, here I'm speaking with uh, almost a pigeon slant, right? <laughs> um, so it's, it was a, one of those confusing times. Like people really didn't know where to place me. Um, it, it was an interesting thing where I could identify more with the black people. Mm. But the black culture is very different, right? That this is one of those things we have to acknowledge living in the west black culture is not unique so it because it's very diverse and very, one of very. the things that you know when you ask somebody it's funny you know i run, i would run into somebody um that's black and you know you, from the accent you know they're west african you know they would either be Ghanaian or nigerian it's it's very similar so you would say hey where are you from and they would say africa and then i would just laugh because yeah okay i know just give me the proper answer like right uh, so it's a different concept that you have to work with. For yeah. Sure. The whole idea that you said that um, it's unique, the whole tone of your blackness. Uh, I've been in the UK now uh, because I grew up in Nigeria and coming back to the UK. And when I talk to some people, some people can't necessarily place my accent, especially my fellow Nigerians. So when I do start speaking to them in Yoruba or in Pidgin, First right. of all, they're surprised because they think, oh, this guy's an Ajabota or he's yeah. an evil. Yeah, exactly, you know. But then when you say that and then you make them understand that, look, being a Nigerian has its own uniqueness, just as someone exactly. who is from Ghana or someone who is from 
other parts of the world who aren't necessarily the diaspora, but they're bringing their own uniqueness. And yep. you yourself being Tamil, you're bringing your own uniqueness because I know there there's the Sri Lankan Tamils, as it were, right. and you also have the Indian Tamils, Canadian Tamils, right. the British Tamils. And yep. then you've got those identities where, yes, they do have a connection to the motherland. Motherland, yeah. But at the same time, they've carved their own identity where they find themselves in. Exactly, exactly. I mean, one of the battles, I'll tell you a funny story, is uh, we don't have a lot of um, African restaurants. I'm just going to use that term broadly, right? Um, so uh, there was a Caribbean festival that took place in Toronto, and I saw this stand for jollof rice, right? So I'm like, damn, this is the best thing that can ever happen to me today, so I'm going to go get some. I go there, it's not the same thing, right? It's not what I remembered. And I'm talking to this lady, and I realize she's Ghanaian. <laughs> right so i'm like okay yeah okay yeah okay i see i see your point you know that's the Ghanaian jollof rice it's not what i'm looking for right uh so we have to accept those there is those subtle difference i mean for her it's the best jollof rice there is but for somebody who's grown up in nigeria that jollof rice is very different right may i just say now Ram, is it okay if I say I love you so much for just acknowledging that? <laughs> I had a Ghanaian friend of mine, hello, Mark, uh, a couple of episodes ago, who claims that um, the Ghanaian jollof rice is the far superior jollof rice. Not in so many words, but that's what he said. And a survey was taken based on what he had mentioned, and Ghana right. came on top. But of course, most of his friends are Ghanaian, so they would support. Yeah. But it's nice to see a neutral party, albeit... <laughs> an honorary Nigerian who recognizes and acknowledges that Nigeria jollof rice is king. <laughs> hey, you know what? Independent judge, just a little bit biased, just a little bit biased, right? So you've been in Canada now for coming nearly 40 years. Tell us a bit about your time there from then up to now. Well, it's been an immigrant experience, you know. Now, when you look at it, the first few years it was struggle because we're not we're not exposed to the same culture, the different values and standards and stuff like that. And uh, you're always the other because you know when you come in. When I came into Canada, the, our whole family came in. And we were settling in. It's a very refugee experience because you know you're forced to. It's not. It wasn't like you didn't have much big choice in coming to Canada. It was like hey, it was a safe place to go to. Um, so, you know, we came here and it was a struggle getting in, learning the culture, getting jobs and stuff like that, right? So when I came here, like I told you, went to the Polytechnic and when I came here was, you know, we came to Montreal, which was French speaking. And so when you don't speak French, they had just passed the bill, what they call Bill 101, where if you were not born to English parents in Quebec, then you didn't have the right to be educated in English. Um, so I was looking forward to going to university, but uh, they said, no, no, you can't go to university. You have to learn French. And so now to go through high school. So I was put in grade seven. I was like, I can't be doing this grade seven. I'm 17 years old. I've already finished the polytechnic. But the good thing is there's, Canada has a lot of immigrants and they understand different immigrant stories, right? So I went and I was able to talk to a school which was run that were primarily staffed by um, black people, black staff members. The principal there was a black ma uh, man and he understood the struggle of the immigrants. He was, I believe, had Jamaican origins in him and it was an English school. But he said, hey, come to my school. I can't officially enroll you in, but I'll put you in the final year um, you know, and then you can just write the exams. 
the ministry won't market for you, but our teachers will give you recommendations so that you can go to take that and go to university. So that gave me a helping hand because I just was able to finish that one last semester and apply for university, which I did and was able to um, get in. But at that time, then I at that time decided to move to Toronto, which was much more open. And then, of course, like I said, you know, my English was kind of the pigeon slant English. And guess what? They said, hey, you can't do this. You have to take TOEFL to do it. Right. And I'm like, nobody told me that, even though I've had my, you know, final year of high school English, which scored more than what others are scoring, because, you know, when they're doing an English exam, it's based on your writing skills, not on your spoken thing, right? So it was it was a challenge. And of course, you, you realize one thing, either you give up uh, or you fight for it, right? Uh, my first job when I came in was at a restaurant washing dishes. And I learned a lot that in, at that place, you know. Well, what was funny was I was 17, you know, headstrong. Here I've done, you know, polytechnic, and you expect me to be washing dishes it's beneath me, you know. And so I hated going to that place, but I, ha- I had to go. You know, my mom, the restaurant owner would call my mom and say, send your son. He has work today, right? I, because I would say, I forgot. I don't know if I have any shift or anything. So I did go. But one thing I learned at that place was, Luckily for me, there was about six of us Tamil people working in the restaurant, at the, and we were all dishwashers. None of us were cooked. It was a Greek restaurant, but I was the only guy who could speak fluent English, at least to something that the guys could understand, you know, be a pigeon type. So I was kind of the translator when things, were, you know, he wanted to talk to these guys. And I was 17, so he kind of took a liking to me in some way. I remember one time the toilet in the restaurant flooded the customer's toilet and the, my boss who's the owner of the restaurant came and said hey Ram, can you go clean up the toilet i'm like no that's not my job i'm not doing that and going to do that and he said okay you know he took off his jacket you know his three-piece suit jacket and of course he took the mop and he went and cleaned it up and came back i looked at the guy right and he said and he tapped me on my shoulder and said ram you know when i was your age i was a dishwasher too and I, at that moment like a light went on in my head you know, that day, if that guy didn't clean up his toilet, he could have fired me and said, well, you go home. That's it. I don't want you here anymore, right? His toilet would still have been flooded. His customers would have thought bad of the restaurant and it wouldn't have been coming to it, right? He saved his restaurant and he fought for what he believed and what he had worked hard for, right? That lesson gave me something that I had to fight for myself, that I shouldn't just be giving up. So it took me a good two years to get into a university in Canada. But I did that. And I said, I was going to do that. And when I went, they said, hey, you can't take English because, you know, you probably need to take some courses in a second language. I said, no, give me the hardest literature course there is. And I'm proud to say I managed to get a B in it, even though English isn't my favorite uh, course, right? But but it was one of those struggles that a lot of immigrants go through. But the, if you're willing to fight for it and um, work hard for it, then you, you can make something of yourself, I think. I think also because you know where you're coming from and where you're going. So there's also that sense of responsibility, not just to yourself, but to others who come after you. Because you find yourself, because I've read a lot about the Tamil experience and the fact that, uh, of course, with what's happened in Sri Lanka and the war and what have you, apparently Tamils are one of the largest diasporas in the world go to Singapore, go to Malaysia, where have yeah. you? I mean, I thought Nigeria, I thought Yorubas were all over the world. I was in mm-hmm. Chennai once and I met this guy, we were talking 
and I, I saw his, I could hear his accent and I asked him, what's your name? My name's Tundi. I said, nah, your name's Tundi. <laughs> <laughs> but talking to you, but what you've mentioned about that story is also a humbling experience because right. in a man who's also an immigrant who, cause he's Greek. If he could right. take that, make that decision that, listen, I'm not going to let anything go in the way of my success, even if it's a flooded toilet. Yeah. That must have been a real eye opener for you right there. And big there. time. It was a big time. And, and I, the lesson I learned that day wasn't about, you know, how big you are or how much money you have is the respect and the dignity of labor, right? It's, you know, it's his labor. He, it, he had respect in it. He was his own and he wasn't going to let anybody else take it away from him. Right. And, and, it's interestingly because when I look at when I talk to a lot of immigrants now that I have uh, you know life experiences and you talk to lots of people and gain where they are, and in Canada if you go there's a lot of Greek restaurants right and when I talk to some of the Greeks that are older and stuff and they tell me hey Ram do you know why there's a lot of Greek restaurants I'm like really no tell me why because when we first started coming to Canada nobody wanted to give Greeks jobs. Like you could go in and there would be a sign saying Greeks and Italians not allowed, right? No Greeks or Italians. So he goes, the easiest way for us to make sure our family had food was open a restaurant, open a little shop where you sold shivlaki or burgers or fries, because that way there was food always in the restaurant for your family. That's why we opened those restaurants. And it was interesting. That's how it happened. Similarly, like when you go across Canada and you see all these uh, lots of Chinese, like I think in any part of North America, be it Canada or the U.S., you go into any small town, there's always that one Chinese restaurant that's open till midnight or one o'clock, and it's just family run, you know, with the mother or father or the child hanging around there, you know, trying to get some money made there. And that's because those those were the things that nobody wanted to hire these people. And so they had these little restaurants or little sidekick that they could just make a living off, mm -hmm. um, interestingly, right? So that's... Uh, uh, it's the immigrant experience. Mm. My father, he studied in the UK in the 60s. And right. uh, he would tell us stories about um, he'd go to places for jobs. And some of the messages would say on the board saying that no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Yeah. And this is back in the 60s. This is less than 60 years ago. And despite people saying there have been improvements, which there have been, we still see levels of discrimination, racism, Absolutely. and other isms against people because they're seen as the other, like you right. mentioned earlier on. And other, I noticed yeah. from your profile that you're an activist as well, that you're always fighting for the little man and little woman as well. So tell us a bit about your activism. So, well, you know, Bob, Coming from Sri Lanka as a refugee and seeing a lot of my friends, you know, who've been really been having firsthand uh, um, affected by the war and stuff, right? Those were some of my initial starting days of being a human rights activist, saying, hey, we need people to be treated with dignity. You know, I remember one time I, I joined Amnesty International as a youth member. Uh, I was one of the first people that Amnesty International Canada trained as a youth facilitator, um, you know, just because they wanted us to talk to youth to bring this human rights into the thing, because Amnesty is a very grassroots organization. Um, and I remember at that time, just after Tiananmen Square had happened, and, and we were one of the protests we were doing in front of um, the Chinese embassy. At that time, there was no, you know, social 
media internet, so you kind of had to rely on news or newspapers if you got them, right? And those were some of my uh, days in which, uh, you know, my activism started. Um, and then, of course, coming down, um, you know, further on when I started the workforce, uh, my work that I currently work in is a unionized workforce. And my union, which is Ontario Public Service Employees Union, was, you know, they have a lot of training programs for the members. If you want to take an education on labor rights, human rights, um, disability rights, you name it. Uh, so those, as you become more aware, then, you know, you, you have to stand up for the little guy. Uh, as you say, because you realize how much discrimination there is, how much uh, otherisms there are, right? And so you have, you know, if you just stand by, um, you can't do anything. Um, I mean, I remember uh, my first um, major, I would say, step into when I decided I needed to do something was back in 2006. What had happened was, um, you know, I always wanted my kids to be aware of uh, the world. So, we always had a newspaper subscription, which my father used to, it was something I learned from my father. And um, I used to read the morning headlines with my son before we went off to school. Um, so it was one of those things where they were cutting taxes in Canada with the goods and services taxes we had. And it was about the time I was teaching my son, uh, hey, you know, if you have this much money, you know, learn learning math and when you go $10, if you want to buy something, you know, pay taxes, all those stuff. It was a good way to teach him math. And so he was saying, okay, what is this taxes that they're cutting? I said, well, you know, when you went go and buy that toy car, that's $5. And then the cashier actually charges you $5.50 because it's, you know, you're paying 50 cents tax on it. And he said, yeah, okay. And he says, well, so why are they cutting it? I said, isn't that the tax that goes to schools and hospitals and everything? And I said, yeah, but I, so in my stupidity or moment of lack of judgment, I said, hey, I think they have enough. So they're trying to, they don't need as much from you. So they're going to reduce that tax. And he turned to me and said, damn, I don't have to sell all those chocolate bars at school from school anymore. You know, the chocolate bars they give them at school to do fundraisers, right? And that opened my eye up, right? Like so I said, okay, I have to do something about this, right? Because here is, you know, the kids believing that, you know, he needs to pay taxes because it's good for the community. And by the way, right now I have that struggle with my son because he thinks he's the biggest socialist there is. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, but so I so I decided I had to run for the school, uh, the trustee in our area because there had to be t debates that were t uh, talked about and stuff like that. And it was one of those things that I started late in the campaign. I lost that election. It wasn't that I was, uh, you know, I won it because there's always pol politics and it was my introduction into politics, operationalization of it, right? So it was an interesting experience for sure. And then four years later, um, I had worked, you know, four years for the term. I'd done a lot of my rounds, talked to a lot of people. I was in a good place to win the following election. And one of the door, so when I was door knocking and, you know, in houses in Canada, we have basements. So people live upstairs in the basements. Sometimes they're finished as a one bedroom apartment or something, and they're rented out to lower costs. And some of them are very illegal because they don't follow the proper uh, building codes and stuff. So door knocking. And when I was door knocking and what had happened was one of the kids said, hey, so you want to be trustee? What are you going to do for me? I was like, what can I do for this kid that he wants me to do for him? And I realized there was nothing I could do for him as a trustee, because what his needs were was he wanted to have a proper house, you know, where his family could live. And all I could offer him was like, hey, I'll make sure your schools are good. 
And at that point, I decided if I was going to ever do anything uh, for these kids, I had to run for the mayor of the town. And the mayor of our town, um, Ms. Saga, had been in power for almost 35 years plus. And she's never been, uh, she's never lost an election. She always goes off on vacation when there's an election because everybody just loved this woman. Her name's Hazel McCallion. Hurricane Hazel. Hurricane Hazel, exactly. Oh, you say you've done your research. So <laughs> Hurricane Hazel was a, was a tough beat. And I said, so what I decided was I knew I wasn't going to win the election, but I needed an election debate to happen. I needed people to talk about the issues that the community was facing. And so at the very last moment, I, decided, I, I withdrew my candidacy for the trustee and, and ran for the mayor. Um, and it was good. It was because my family was supportive. In some ways, my extended friends were very. They were always there for me. Um, and it's been great. So that journey of activism just started. And you just, I realized that I don't necessarily have to be the person that. It would be great to be the decision maker, but you can still have an influence uh, when you advocate for something. Um, so, you know, it's been one of those, uh, it's been a journey where you just continue to do what you have to do. Were you the only ethnic contender during those elections at the time? No, no, there, there were other ethnic contenders at that time. And this is one of my concerns, which is uh, concerning Canadian politics, is the ethnicization of, of politics in some way, because the, the parties will cater to, uh, you know, certain ethnic groups by saying, hey, we'll give you a riding where, you know, you can put your candidate in and stuff. And those, because we come from different backgrounds with different issues back in our different countries, we don't. We also go to the countries and say, "Hey, you know, like for example, if you look at the Tamils, they'll say, hey, you know, if I get to be the Tamil candidate, and you know, I can do so much for our Tamils back in Sri Lanka.' I'm like, really, don't be on, don't be dishonest about it. The powers you have don't. But you could be a voice because now you have some legitimacy around it, but not as much as you promised to be, right? Uh, one of the things I got asked when I was running for mayor is, hey, if you get elected, can uh, my uh, family get a visa to come over? Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, really, you want the honest answer? No. Um, you would have seen one of those things that... Um, in you know when you watch my wife's debate on the and the councillor was how a councillor the incumbent at that time was promising hey I'll get you public lands to build a mosque, and um, uh, and my wife was look there's no way as a councillor I can allocate a piece of land for you to build a mosque because you can buy it from the city when it becomes available but there's no way you can do it it's and that was in 2014, but unfortunately the way the politics works is now you. you you know, my wife, who's a brown woman, shows up in a normal Western, you know, what top and jeans or pants to a mosque, and the white person shows up in a ethnic garb. Suddenly, the white person has suddenly become the mm -hmm. darling of the. I think it's an issue which doesn't just affect areas in Canada. It also happens in Nigeria, or right. also even in India as well or other places yeah. whereby they place um caucasian people on that's the right. pedestal yep and one of the issues i have with that personally is that if you look at the history of the caucasian man and i'm just generalizing here yeah. is that you've got to look at the history of colonialism far-reaching damage it's that it's affected people that's right i mean if you were to look at sri lanka when the Brits came, they came over, they did their thing. And now because of what they did, it yeah. caused knock-on effect. Same also with India as well. Same also with Nigeria. And I'm talking as someone who's been 
under that. I mean, as a Nigerian, I wasn't yeah. born at the time, but there was the Biafran War, which was basically something that came off from colonialism. And yeah. the stories can go on and on. And yet to this day, not all, but many people always place Caucasian people as the savior. On the pedestal. On the pedestal. That's right. And I think it's a mindset that needs to be cleaned. I think yeah. it, education needs to be brought back and people right. need to be made aware and awareness has got to be put in. I think like one of the things, you know, I always talk to, it's a lot of things that I talk about. And one of the things I talk about is um, the white man has been good at making rules and saying, we need to follow the rules, right? Because it seems proper because these are the rules. We should be following the rules. But the rules don't necess are not necessarily favorable. So when you look at the British when, during colonial times, they said, hey, we always believe in the rule of the law. <laughs> and they applied the rule of the law. But the rule of the law wasn't ne not necessarily equitable or fair. Mm. And that's what we fail to realize, right? So for us from the col uh, colonies and stuff, when I look at even my parents and stuff, because their exposure was in education and a lot of um, missionary, missionary run schools, right? Where they had, and our cultures are very um, um, respectful towards your teachers. You never challenge your teacher, right? Even when I talk to my mom or my, my son talks to my mom and he's like, oh, I'm having this debate with my professor. My mom would be like, you shouldn't be debating your professor. You should be listening to them. You should be humble. You should be learning from them. Not exchange of opinions, right? It's, it's interesting to note that. So when we come in here and we have that concept um, of, hey, how do we deal with these situations? I remember when I first came in and it, I couldn't call my uh, teachers by name. I had to call them, sir. As old as I am, when I see people of a certain age, I will right. either address them as Mr. Yeah. or Mrs. Mm -hmm. I am not going to call you I'll by call your first name. name. I, I just can't <laughs> do that. I, you, yeah. you, you can't. Even Nigerians as well. There's some Nigerians because, of course, black don't crack, and I'll say it proudly. <laughs> there's certain black people you can't tell their age. My no, you sister, can't. My older sister looks younger than me. Right. My, my friends, I've told my friends, I've said, listen, don't don't be calling my sister by her first name. It's yeah. not going to happen. You either call her Ms. Ms. Yeah. Or you call her Big Sis. Don't call right, her yeah. by her first name. You don't. And that's the thing with, with our Tamil culture, for example, right? Everybody's, you're an Anna or a Akka, right? You, even if they seem to be younger than you, you just go by the default of the older respect thing, right? It, and that's how we do it. It was definitely interesting to a concept to figure those things out, right? Um, the other part that I struggle with now, you know, part of it is how we, for example, as Tamils or the non-white people are put on a color-coded structure where we are taught that somebody's better than us or not better than us. For example, one of the things I fight within the Tamil community is the word how we, we shouldn't be using the word kapili or Negro. <laughs> those are things we don't understand because we also, within the Tamil culture, you would see there are people who are just as, like my first cousin, um, my dad's brother's son, he is darker than you, Akin. Within our culture, we disparage people who are black. Of course. Or dark-skinned, right? Dark-skinned tone. I can say in Tamil, non kapili ilay, non Tamil, which I've said <laughs> to some people. <laughs> oh, so, see, this is, a, this is a big shocker, right, for people. Uh, and, and it's people need to realize those kind of things. Because when we first came to Canada, you know, there's a certain segment of um, Tamil community that came to Canada that had 
because you're refugees, you came in with a pretty decent education. And the, the black people that came, especially from Jamaica and uh, Caribbean countries into Canada, a lot of them were not as well educated. So they, they were brought in to do basically menial jobs. And so we, we were also led to believe, hey, these guys are beneath us, right? So there was that spectrum of, oh, those, those guys don't know what they're talking about. Mm. Those are black people, right? Or Carvel, right? So we have to fight those. Other thing, one of the other biggest things why, when I came to Canada was how the indigenous people were just lazy people just wanting to take advantage of government uh, grants and stuff. And so we thought, hey, why is it that there's so much more uh, indigenous people that are drug addicts and in jails and stuff, right? And then you realize that the systemic racism, understanding systemic racism takes a long time. Because like I said earlier, the, it was just the rules are fair. You know, when you look at the rules, everybody's fair, everybody's equal. But how it's implemented and how it applies to certain groups and how certain groups have been systemically disadvantaged for hundreds of years, Right. Because they don't have that empowerment. Like, you know, in Canada, the biggest news is the discovery of 215 uh, graves of children. Um, and it's, you know, this is not history because some of those survivors are still alive. Mm. You know, there's people saying, look, I was in that school when those things were still happening. And we have to acknowledge that as because we tend to think, um, I was talking with my daughter and, it was, you know, she just got her first movie role. And I said, you know, Maitre, I posted about these people on my Facebook. And I probably have like 10 comments on the 215 children. But when I posted about your um, uh, getting a movie role, there was like 20 times that people mm -hmm. commenting on it, right? Uh, how is that? And she goes, she goes, Dad, that's the exact same thing. She goes, look at my Instagram. People like to rather see a stupid picture of me doing making a silly face than when I comment about a social issue. Yeah. Do you think that people are desensitized? Do, do you reckon that people are desensitized to what's going on in the world? I think in some ways it's there's so much going on, so much this injustice going on that we kind of want to ignore it and look for those happy things. So we're saying, hey, I don't want to I know this is going on, but what can I do about it? People are feeling um what should I say? unempowered. I think we need to, people need to feel that they, yes, their voice can be heard. They need to be done. There's so much injustice, but how do we correct it? And we can be better and happier for it as well, right? Yes, there's a need for happy news. Everybody wants to be happy, but we can only be happy if we're happy as a collective. Yeah. Unfortunately, the world we live in is flawed. And in as much as we'd like to pull our hands together and sing Kumbaya. Right. I'm always reminded of that quote in Animal Farm, that all animals are equal, but some animals right. are more equal than others, which is the sad, unfortunate truth. But yes, <laughs> we, but it of is. course, it's important that we still put a voice out there. People should yeah. be aware about what's going on and have that sense of duty towards right. others as well. But let's move away slightly for a second from something which is very deep because these are deep words you're producing here. And let's go into what your quote is or your favorite saying or proverb. I think it is, you know, one of the things when you go to a high school in Nigeria, secondary school for your English exam, they make you memorize those idioms because oh they're showing God. up in your WIAC. <laughs> Why those have taken, I have not. Those, those who have taken those WIAC exam, right? For those of you who listen in, WIAC at the time was the West African Exams Council. 
Yes, yeah. WIAC. It was the West African Exams Council. And I think it went on up until 1989. But please continue. So, so this, I mean, there's so many quotes I could say. And, you know, you have to take an inspiration from each of those quotes when you're, you're faced with that situation. And those are, that's, those are some of those doctrines, indoctrinations that you grow up with, right? I look at it like when my, so my son's named Vishwamitran. Right. And Vishwamitran in the Hindu mythology is a sage who was a king that decided to become a, a sage, but they told him you can't because you're a warrior. You can never be a sage. And for me, in my reflection of how I came to Canada and my life, and I wanted my son to be somebody, you know, that he could determine his own future. Like he would decide what he wanted to be and he could make that happen. It wasn't going to be somebody else telling him or what his predestination was. So I named him Vishwamitran. Uh, so those of you who are interested in Hindu mythology, that'd be a something to research. Um, but I think for me, it's like you have to do. Um, you have to do. Outside. We were talking about, hey, what would be our family model if we were going to do something? And I would come up with, I would, in my view, I mean, we still have this debate in the family because all, like my daughter would occasionally tell me, dad, you know, your stories are great. Can you just write a book and sell zero copies? <laughs> right? And I, I laugh nice, at them and say, nice hey. When you, it's nice when you have family support like that. <laughs> yeah, no, tell me about it, eh? Tell me about it. I, I could have been a star, but hey, you know, but what do you do, right? I mean, it's good because your family always makes you, cuts you down to size. You know, they know where to put you so your ego doesn't float away. Um, so I, I would say the word sail in Tamil, sail, which is to do. To do. It's just You just have to do it, right? If you, And I always saw, I've always told my kids and this thing, and I always believe it in myself, is you're, you fail if you've never tried it. Would you say that Nike actually stole the idea but just put just? I don't stuff? know. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, hey, if there's royalties involved, I'll claim it. You know, I'm sure there's some lawyers listening to your uh, show here that we could file some class action lawsuit, go for an out of court settlement. You know, we could retire comfortably, I'm, I'm hoping. And why not? So when we're looking at this idiom um, to do, yeah, how. I'm sure it has impacted you, but could you in some ways give us an example, one particular example where you did by doing and there's been a positive output? It's, it's, um, I would say, you know what, it's, it's part of my everyday life just to do, to do something, right? And there's so many, um, it's, it's hard for me to come up with a quick example as such, but I would think that there's so many things that when they say, hey, a brown man cannot do or, um, you know, hey, people don't expect me to do it. It's, it's been done and delivered, uh, even at work, for example. Um, so it's one of those things you just have to do. Um, I'll give you the story, like my work, you know, I did when I came to Canada, it was, you know, as brown parents or immigrant parents, you know, you got your first choice is be a doctor or an engineer. I listened to your show about the engineer. Right. And if you if you don't do that, you're a failure. Right. And I went to school to do business administration and um, I had such an engaging professor that I did. Um, I changed my major to public policy and polit political science. And when I told my parents that and everybody around my family was like, what is this guy going to do? Is he thinking he's going to ever be a prime minister of Canada or something? 
But I, it was something that I loved. I engaged. I le- learned a lot from it. But when I graduated, really, there was nobody wanted to hire an immigrant who was not a citizen into the diplomatic corps, which I was hoping for. Um, but there was a hobby of mine, which was just a computer playing with computers, that became a career, which I work in, which I'm working in now. And so I've just been able to do that. So when they said, "Hey, you know, I'm, for me to do something to get that into that career, I had to study." Right. So there was. Um, so my wife was pregnant at that time with uh, my son. So I would say I have to write these certification exams to, so you know, to have some kind of paper to get into this field. And what I did at that time was like I bought the books and I just stayed home and I studied. You know, got three, four computers, three, four. It was six months of torture, but I was able to do it and prove that yes, you know, I have something that I could do. And I think that was big. That was a big barrier uh, thing for me. And I think even just for our community as a whole at that time, a lot, a lot of us were not getting into those office jobs. We were basically, you know, hey, you're good. You're Tamil. You're a great cook. You're a great dishwasher. That was pretty much what it was. I remember in 2009, which was in, not long ago, when you know the final war or the the war in Sri Lanka was happening, coming to its conclusion, the height of the war. Um, Restaurants in Toronto would have to almost had to close because all these Tamil cooks and dishwashers, kitchen staff, were basically leaving uh, work to go protest. So there, there was no, they were not being staffed properly, right? So those are so those are some of those experiences. So I'm thinking, you know, to do is you just have to do it. Mm, that's powerful. So um, if, for the sake of argument, you were to change career paths. Mm-hmm. What would it have been? So, it's interestingly enough, I'm almost just about ten years away from my retirement, and all this stuff now about these, you know, all this my activism and stuff. What it's brought me to do is, I'm now currently following a, a program to complete. I'm not sure if I want to go into the complete to be a full lawyer yet, but I'm doing in Canada. We have something called a paralegal program. Wow. Uh, where you can advocate, you know, things like uh, tenants' rights, human rights uh, uh, tribunals and stuff like that. So I'm doing um, a program, which is a two-year program. And uh, so I'm just about, um, by the end of uh, August, I would have been, I would have just finished half the program. Um, so it's something that I'm looking forward to. It may be something that I may follow, hopefully. Although I always tell, you know, sometimes there are just days when you've been dealing with so many issues and you just want to say, look, I have a friend of mine, the guy's happy as a lark, right? And he's like, oh, Ram, uh, you know, I'm just going to go home, watch the game and uh, have a beer, right? And I'm like, I want to be like you. Why can't I be like you, right? Why can't I be like you? Why do I have to be like, I have to go home and prepare for a board meeting or come come up with something or got to write this thing out? Uh, yeah, so so I think I'm on my transition to the next phase. Hopefully um, it'll be something because you realize um, it's a great, there's a great lawyer in Toronto. Her name is Barbara Jackman. She's been fighting a lot of immigration cases, especially for people uh, whose cases have been rejected and, you know, goes on to appeals and stuff. And she's one of those lawyers I admire because I'll, she's never been a lawyer that asks her client for fees first. It's her staff that she goes around. I'm, how can I ask somebody who is at the verge of deportation, has no work permit for work, you know, hey, here's my $10,000 bill, 
right, for me to take your case. She's been like, she's one of those poorest lawyers, but rich in heart. You know, somebody that I've seen her in the courtroom when she speaks, the, she's not one of those loud lawyers, you know, waving her arms. She's just one of those meek lawyers, right? And the judges listen to her. Mm. It was so, it was it's like my first experience meeting her. Again, was on a case. There's a case that we've been working on um, called the Suresh Manikavasan case in Toronto. Um, and so they said, hey, Ram, you should go and give this documents to Barbara Jackman. She'll be at this hearing, right? Um, so I had no idea who it was. And I'd just been my first year of university. I'd learned about this case called uh, Singh versus Canada. And this was a, it's a determining case where... Um, the lawyer had argued successfully said that if you were in Canada, as long as you were on Canadian soil, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms applied to you. And the government had been saying, no, it only applies if you were a citizen. But it was determined, according to the Charter, that if, as long as you were in Canada, your immigration status didn't matter. Your rights were your rights. So, you know, I've learned this case, you know, a week before, and I had the most knowledge. So I went to bar see Barbara, and I saw her, you know, she's just a little woman sitting and wearing jeans. We had this hearing for her, for an American Human Rights Council, something like that. So I said, Barbara, do you know, there is this case called the thing where, you know, it was determined that, you know, it didn't matter, your immigration status didn't matter. And Barbara just looked at me and said, yeah, you're right. That's the, that, that's, yeah, that's the case. I was the lawyer on that. So I was like, okay, you're the lawyer, you know, but it was one of those, you admire people that have knowledge and they do the good they do. And you get inspiration from somebody like that. And I went to her office and there she is, you know, one of the poorest lawyers, you know, living in a shabby little office where lawyers who have lost cases are forwarding cases to her. And they are in these big core shiny offices, right? Mm. And you realize at that point also that, it doesn't matter how much money you make or what kind of car you drive, but what difference in somebody's life you make, right? And that's, mm. that's an important aspect, I think. Let me throw a question at you. You have 24 hours. You've been given the power to be Prime Minister of Canada, and you can do whatever you want to do. You can change legislature. Basically, for 24 hours, you can be, I don't want to use the word dictator, but yeah, you're a dictator <laughs> for 24 hours to do whatever you want to do to change policy in Canada. What would you do? The number one thing I want to do is make sure that our Indigenous communities have clean drinking water. It's so sad that our so many communities in Canada for 50 plus years have boiled water advisory. They cannot get clean drinking water. We're, we cannot be a first na class nation when people in our country don't have water. Or people like we have free healthcare, but people still don't have access to free medicine. Are you telling me that from all the documentaries I've seen showing the expansive landscape of Canada with all its natural resources, people still can't afford, not afford, but can't get drinking water, clean drinking That's right. water? That's exactly right. That's the status of our in Indigenous nations. There are certain areas where, like um, uh, Grassy Narrows, where the water that they lived has been poisoned by mercury by factories that in that area that have not been cleaned up. So kids and families, people there are, have mercury poisoning. Those are things that we need to take account for. Sounds similar to what's happened in Flint in Michigan. Yeah, exactly. Oh. Exactly. The other, other key thing is I would make sure, you know, how Canada, Canadian companies, mining companies especially, 
are one of the most notorious for going out and polluting in other parts of the world. I would say any Canadian company operating in any part of the world should follow Canadian standards. We let companies go and mine in Africa, Ghana, uh, wherever, wherever, and then we come back and we hear we hear of so many human rights abuses, environmental pollution, yeah. which they cannot get away with here. And yeah. I think that's a shame. I think also, and looking at it from a different perspective as well, I also would blame or hold responsible those to whom they go to in certain countries, because if they decided, no, you're not going to pass on this kind of rubbish to us, they wouldn't have a case to leg to stand on. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is unfortunately the the part of the thing is in our in the countries, right? We don't have proper uh, systems of accountability. I'll give you a case back in Nigeria when I was there. Um, this was, I believe, in Kaduna or, or somewhere, uh, where they had brought in like forty containers and told some farmer, "Hey, can we leave these containers in your farm field for a while till we figure out what we're going to do with it?" Farmer was getting some money. He said, sure, pay me the money. And it was found out these were actually nuclear waste, I believe, from Italy back then. Right. And you know how corrupt uh, corruption works in our third world countries, because all third world leaders love to play the ethnic uh, divisions, love to play ethnic emotions. Right. And win those elections. And then they're pocketing those money. You know, it's all about cola. Like every Nigerian knows what cola is. Right. Mm -hmm. If you don't give somebody cola, nothing is happening. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, we, and we need to take accountability because it's not the guy who's giving the cola that's responsible. It's also the guy who's giving the cola. Right. Yeah. Because you want to get something. There's such a competition for resources. Right. And, and for example, Nigeria is not a poor country. Right. It's not a poor country. It has a lot of wealth. We look as much as, you know, as, I think as diaspora, you will identify more as Nigerian than when you are in Nigeria because you're either Hausa or Yoruba. Yeah. And I, when I, you know, it saddens me when I look at, for example, what the ethnic rights that still continue to happen in Nigeria with, um, well, with uh, you know, between the Christians and the Muslims or the Boko Haram, right? Because when I was growing up there, you know, from going from Ondo to Sokoto was a day trip. Was, I mean, the roads weren't the greatest, but, you know, it was, it, nobody felt unsafe. As a teenage boy, I remember going with my friends. One of my jobs was, to, hey, because I could speak Hausa, you know, on, or my parents or my uh, friends of my parents would say, hey, can you go buy these chickens? And, you know, people in the Western world wouldn't know this, but you had to actually go buy live chickens. There was no supermarket to go and buy a frozen chicken that you could do, right? So, of course, I would go to these little villages because it was a good opportunity to get on the back of a pickup truck, go drive, you know, pay the guy 10 kobo or 15 kobo to go you, into you some they, village. You know, they don't use kobos anymore in Nigeria. See, I'm already lost, right? <laughs> <laughs> kobos are no longer around. For those of you listening, kobo is equivalent to a penny or pennies. So we don't use that anymore in Nigeria. They don't there you exist. Go. Hey, when I when I was there, it was like you had one naira. It was like fifty kobo for a bean cake and fifty kobo for a coke. You'd be lucky if you could even get half of that right now. <laughs> so let's talk about food. Let's talk about yeah. food, and I'm going to put you on the spot right now. So uh, you can't think about it. Here we go. Between pepper soup or nanda curry, which would you go for? Oh, this is a hard one, man. It's a hard one. It's a hard one. But it's it depends on what it goes with. Like nandakari with puttu is the best. But pepper soup with uh, pounded yam, 
That's a different story. You can't just compare it by itself. <laughs> okay. Second question. Palm wine or toddy? Yes, they are from the same tree, but... Sim similar tree. Similar okay. tree. Similar okay. tree. So right? which would you similar go for so, depending on which one you're sitting under. <laughs> okay. And finally, Vade or Akara? Oh, I got to tell you, I have a bias towards Akara. <laughs> okay. You know, what's so funny is because when we first went to Ondo, you know, the, the, the ingredients to make Vade are not, were not readily available in Nigeria, the Olundo, right? So the closest thing you could come to was Akara. Akara was spicy. It was much more spicier than uh, Vade, right? But it was also oily, much more oily. So it would be funny because, you know, here we were all these expatriates living in this Ondo town, for example, and you couldn't, it was kind of um, not dignified to go and stop by the side street vendor who was, you know, this woman that was sitting by the fire frying uh, a dakara on the side of the road and selling it, right? So it wasn't kind of dignified. So somebody would go and when they're going, they would just buy it in the newspaper. They would take it to somebody's house, but then you couldn't eat it because of the oil content or we were not used to the palm oil that it was being fried in. And you would dab it in newspapers to squeeze the oil out so you could enjoy it. Did your parents right? ever find out? Hey, you know, but I, you know, my, my, fortunately for my dad, uh, for me, my dad was one of those people that uh, never really uh, said, no, you can't do this or anything like that. Because my dad's, my, I come, my dad's or my family's interesting in the sense, my dad was born in Singapore. And when he came to Sri Lanka, he was kind of in the same boat I was in Canada. So he kind of had a little bit of understanding where it wasn't really encouraged, but he kind of had to turn a blind eye to it as long as, you know, I'm sure his his uh, friends said, hey, you know, Ram's doing this because I remember certain complaints about certain things. One of the things I always had a struggle when I came to Canada is we, you got in the habit of, okay, as you're leaving the house, you'll just grab a can of Coke or something to drink along the way. And my dad would be like, if you're drinking this, I'm not coming with you. You can take it into the car and open it, but you're not drinking it as you're walking along. It was one of those big things. One of the struggles I had with my dad was um, eating out in restaurants. If we didn't go as a family, uh, if it was just me and him eating, or it was something he struggled with because when he grew up, it was uh, considered that if a man was eating out uh, in a restaurant, that means his wife wasn't cooking for him, right? Or he had problems, home problems. So it was one of those things that he always fought. He loved going to McDonald's. So, but so he would always try to look at, tell my son, you know, why don't you bring me a Big Mac <laughs> <laughs> or something like that? But it was one of those struggles. It's again, the indoctrination we grew up with, right? It's, I remember as a kid, my grandmother would hate us buying bread because bread was something that only the poor ate. It wasn't because mm. somebody's cooking at home, you had to buy bread. So my uncle and I, who my uncle lives in the UK now, we would buy bread and he would have butter stashed away in his uh, room and we would bring it, he would just bring it out just for that bread and we would kind of secretly eat that. So because my grandma would say, you never know how those guys mix the bread. You know, he might be blowing his nose or what happens when he's, the guy's kneading the dough is sweating. You know, where do you think that sweat so is going? It's, it's interesting that everybody has in some degree, some form of pre, no, preconceived notions about other people and say, absolutely oh, right. They're disgusting. They're dirty. How dare they? And 
I have heard people tell stories similar to what you've said as well. And they've said, yes, that despite what their parents have said, that food was still good. <laughs> they still eat so that good. food no matter what. But it was so, you know, one of the things like, so here's, I'm, I have to tell this story. So one of my, when I went to Polytechnic, I had two best friends. And those are my friends. One of them I stay still stay in touch with, and he's like a brother to me. When I started Polytechnic, I was 15. So I was just young. You know, my mustache wasn't even fully, wasn't even, it was, it was trying to grow. Let's put it that way, right? So I'm, I was my day one at, at the Polytechnic, and I was looking for my ways director. And I saw this guy with his, you know, gown, you know, with his malam hat, uh, his nice thing. And he's walking by and say, excuse me, sir. Uh, you know, where is, uh, well, in Hausa, we wouldn't say, you know, we, the local thing is, excuse me, Malam, where is this, uh, how do I go to this class? Um, so this guy tells me, oh, you got to go this way, turn around and go there. I'm like, okay. So I find the class, I go and sit down. I, I always like to sit in the front row, first three rows, because if I don't, I, I'm I'm not paying attention to class, right? So I go sit there. And then this guy, I thought this guy was a professor. He comes and sees, he comes, he's about five years older than me, but he was already working and he's coming in to do more studies. He comes and sits next to me. And his name is Hamza, Hamza Gulma. And him and I became the best of buddies. We would go everywhere together. He had a motorcycle. He's the one who taught me how to ride a motorcycle. And there was another friend of mine whose name was Zayanu. And um, we used to call him, uh, you know, he, he's, he grew, it's a rural area and it's now Kebi State. So it was burning Kebi back then. And uh, Zayanu lived with his uncle who was a farmer. And, you know, Zayanu would go to the farm, help his uncle out. And we saw one day we saw Zayanu riding a donkey and, from that day, Zayana became Sarkin Jackie for us, you know, the king of donkeys. But we, the three of us would be, you know, it's we would go together. We would, you know, put our arms on each other's shoulders and walk, which is something if you do it in the Western world, they'll be thinking these are gay guys, right? But that was not something for us. That was camaraderie. That was your best buddies, right? We would sit around and eat. And, you know, when we look at it and, you know, when we go to Hamza's house or Zayana's house, especially after Ramadan or during the Ramadan period, it'll be like Zayana's uncle's house. It'll be in front of his house. You know, there's a tree there. Everybody's sitting in the evening and then trays of food would come. And if you're around there, you would just sit around and eat your part of the tray, mm -hmm. right? Which people would say, what, you all ate from the same plate, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but we all ate from the same plate, right? It gave you that sense. But it's one of those things I can never forget. Um, mm -hmm. Get to the point. So I left uh, Nigeria in 1988. Um, um, I came to Canada. So we kept in touch because there's no emails. It's just you have to write your letter, which takes a month to get to wherever it gets and get a response back. And so we, I lost touch with Hamza and Zayanu. And so those guys at school called me Salvaraja, which was basically um, uh, the last name because you know your your teachers addressed you by your last name there, and for whatever reason, Hamza, you know, come Facebook, you know, he starts looking for me. I start looking for him. We can't find each other, um, and somehow Hamza kept at it for years and years and years. Wow! And so eighty eight. So we probably lost touch when around ninety ninety one, because Hamza went to Saudi Arabia to work and stuff, and then. It was only um, 2018. He finally, he. I get a message from this guy on Facebook. Are you 
Ramakrishnan Salvaraja because he didn't know I you know, shortened my name when I came here to Ram. It was Ramakrishnan Salvaraja. I said, I looked at his picture and I said, Hamza. He goes, you know, Ram, how Ramakrishna, how I've been thinking about you all these years. Because wow. I know you were Tamil, Sri Lankan, the war. I don't know what happened to you. You know, did you end up staying in Canada? Did you go back to Sri Lanka? Did you, were you killed? Because you have no idea how many Salvarajas I uh, messaged <laughs> to say, do you know this guy? Right? Wow. Um, so it, it's funny because now Hamza, you know, when we were, he's now married, his, you know, I mean, his, his kids are getting married. He has grandkids, right? And we're hoping that someday we'll re, re have a reunion back in Nigeria at some point. Wow. And every year it's been like, okay, it'll be this year, it'll be something comes up, but but we stay in touch. Um, I mean, it, it's the connection, right? Of course. And it's, it's important that you look at these instances because these instances are what shapes us. Those exactly. Memories, it's important because when you encounter certain people who don't happen to be of the same ethnicity or background, but there's a connect. There's a connect, exactly. And that connect is important. There's a quote that says that there's some friends who are stronger than being a brother. There's yeah, just absolutely. A I've, I've got absolutely. a friend of mine that um, he's actually on the podcast called Akin as well. And we may not have spoken for weeks. And the moment we start talking again, it's as if nothing happened. We just keep it's on going nothing happened, yeah. for hours on end. So let's talk about family. And you've got a lovely wife. Who Thank you. she addresses herself as Queen Carly, and she seems which, like which very... is part of it that I don't hope to see often. Yeah, <laughs> and she seems a very formidable person. You also have a daughter who's in the creative arts who does her own thing. But let's look at your son. Um, the name is I can never pronounce the full name. It's Vish. I'm just going to call him Vish. How do you pronounce the full name? So his full name is Vishwamitran. Which means a friend of the friend of the universe. Um, that's what his name is supposed to be, uh, Vishwamitran. But we all call him Vishwa or Vish. People call him Vish, you know, depending on who you are. And uh, yeah, is he a chip off the old block as well? Is he into activism? It's funny because I hate to, I, I you know when he and I have a debate, I become the conservative. I'm like you know, <laughs> all of you lazy socialists and stuff. And he'll say, I know you're debating this thing just because you want to. So who officiates between a conversation or debate between your, your son and you? Uh, you know, it, uh, it, it's hard to debate that guy. I'm telling <laughs> you, these are, even both my daughter and my son and daughter, they're younger versions, new and improved version. They have a lot more uh, knowledge. And I'm becoming um, that guy that have to acknowledge that I have a lot more prejudice, a <laughs> lot more baggage, a lot more indoctrination that I have to undo that these guys don't have to. But it's interesting because we're now living in a time that, first of all, children, the, this generation, have access to readily available knowledge and information. Also, more barriers are being broken down, much more so than our generation. I mean, when I first came into the UK, there were certain things I was not familiar with, taxes, mm -hmm. dieting, or being gay. I didn't know what that <laughs> right. meant because coming yeah. from Nigeria, you know, yeah. dieting, why would you diet? Exactly. <laughs> no one diets in Nigeria. Tax, it was tax. No. And gay, gay was, it's what's foreign. Uh, yeah. You know, but now looking back to that and looking at now, I'm more aware of what's going on. 
And the younger yeah. generation, when they tell me certain stuff, I think, oh, maybe I got this all wrong because yeah. they telling me information and it's well constructed information. It's not just it information. It's, you know, valid information. Yeah. You're right. And this is one of the things I have learned over the years is we can't judge people for what their what opinions are until we've exposed them to it. I believe if we don't take the time to explore, explain things and for them to understand. I'll give you a simple example of myself. So, you know, again, the gay rights thing was something great. You know, se sexually, it's like, hey, okay, you want to do whatever you want to do, that's fine. And I used to, you know, have this opinion that, okay, you know, why, but I don't think that two gay guys or two lesbian women should have, uh, should be able to have children, to be able to adopt children, right? And um, because, you know, I, I will, you know, what I'd learned at that point was, hey, um, you know, how can, how is the kid going to have a um, home um, without a mother and a father? How can it, two fathers or two mothers uh, make a child happen? And, you know, how will they be able to give this child a well-rounded family thing? And that's because, you know, that's what I grew up in, right? And a mother and a, fa a father home. Um, and so I was having this debate. We were talking about this with, over a colleague of mine at work. And um, so Richard at that time said to me, well, Graham, you know, you, you, I see your point. But what do you think of those um, children that grow up in single parent homes? Is that okay if the mother and father get divorced? And I thought, yeah, I think that's okay. Um, and then he said, what about, um, you know, you hear about all these kids that are being abused that don't have a good home because, you know, their families are struggling. I go, no, I think that's, you know, they, it's, it's not good that they're growing that way. So he said, what's wrong with if they have two mothers or two fathers, if they can get a better home, that they can have a stable home, a well-provided for home? where the, you know, parents are not drug addicts. And I, it opened my eyes up to say, hey, you know what? That's not a really a bad thing. It's just because we say it's a bad thing because we don't understand it. Yeah. yeah. Right? And it opened my eyes. That, so that's why I always say to people, it's like, be convinced or convince me. We yeah. always have to. And what my opinions are today are subject to change tomorrow based on the new information or something that I have that enlightens me a little bit more, right? So I think it's important that people keep an open mind to be being able to be changed. And that's very important. And that, I mean, that may be something that's just come with age to me, right? Hmm. Have you been back to Sri Lanka? I did go back so after 1981. So that was the last time I was in Sri Lanka. I went back last um in 2017, I took a trip around the world with around to India and mainly India with my son. And in there, we did a two-day transit in Sri Lanka. And I wanted to go back to my home village, but my son said, "Dad, I don't think you can go. Oh, you need family support, so we're not going there. We just stay off in Colombo for two days, and then we go to India." And last year, as a whole family, we did go. We did make a trip to Sri Lanka with, for my niece's wedding, which was, uh, and we went there for three weeks, and it was a definitely an interesting learning experience. Because um, you know, when I left in '81, um, then you know, there's a war that's happened, and people like they were whenever we had our holidays from Nigeria, my grandparents would, and uncles would say, "Don't come back, don't come, don't come," right? And we would always turn around, and we explored a lot of Europe at that time. Um, and then my grandfather was killed in 1987. Um, my grandmother died uh, thereafter. So it was, and my uncles left uh, Sri Lanka. So it was, the immediate family wasn't there, although there was extended family. But going back uh, last year was a very surreal experience. It was able to reconnect in some ways um, that I can 
I can I couldn't even imagine. Um, the one of the f- things that happened was I got off in Jaffna. We're staying in a hotel in Jaffna. We were going off to a temple. We told our family we had arrived, but we will, you know, come visit them. I'm getting out of the uh, van that we rented um, with my family. I hear this. I hear my name being screamed at, Ram, Ram. Right? I don't recognize the voice, and it's a motorcycle pulls up. I'm like. I'm looking at him. I could recognize him. I knew he was one of my uncles just by that family resemblance. I'm like, okay. He goes, Ram, I'm uh, Ravi, right? I'm like, okay. I recognize the name because I know him. And he was probably around 15, 16 when I left. So here was this guy, saw me from a zillion, you know, meters away and recognized me. I said, how did he even know it was me? He goes, because of Facebook. Right. And so, you know, we went to their house that night because we were scheduled to visit them that night. We went to, and the funny thing was, he had these little biscuits and a bottle of Fanta because those were the things I loved as a kid. Right. It was so that was, that was a crazy experience. And I went to see my grandfather's sister, who was 93 at that time and had passed away last year. I, you know, we we're talking to her. She's, she's bedridden. We're talking to her, and I, she, we're talking about our memories. And I remember my great grandfather, who was pretty much like a tug. He was you know, nobody messed with him because he was the village, you know, head honcho. And he used to walk with this cane. And I, I remember, you know, I was the eldest great grandchild, so I would hold his hand, and I, you know, I would walk with him because you know, I was feeling the power, you know, back then. And um, I thought she was talking about it and said, they we're talking about our memories. And I said, I remember this, you know, I would, he would be walking with this cane because, you know, that's how we would walk. And, and, you know, my aunt goes and brings out this cane. Wow. She goes, this is the cane. So she, I'm like, okay. I go, and she's like, okay. And she says, okay, after she goes, this is my uh, grandfather's cane. So I'm not giving it to you. Right. But after me, wow. so I said, yeah, I claim her- I claim inheritance on that being the first great grandchild, right? So, wow. so I'm like, but it's, you know, one of those, it's those memories that you can connect to because it's something that you share a bond with, you know, all the different stories. They all remember my mother because my mother was the first grandchild, but it was definitely, and then went and saw my grandfather's brother, whom I remember he used to own an automotive garage. And as a kid, you know, for whatever reason, I always thought automotive garages were a place you could go get magnets at. And I would always go bug him. I need a magnet and he would give me a piece, you know, once in a while. Now I realize, well, how do you end up with those things? Really, automotive garages maybe don't necessarily have magnets. But it was interesting because he and my son connected. Right? It was just uh, interesting how those, uh, the connections, like the blood connections that just, come back and uh, connect it's, it's it was a different feeling for sure i'm guessing that also brings to your kids a, a renewed sense of their own identity oh absolutely absolutely i even remember even the our first trip to so i think in 2007 we visited india because again sri lanka was in the height of war um, my wife's grandmother, um, one of her sons, is a Swami in um, India. So that's my uncle, my wife's uncle. And um, so we, you know, my she wanted to go. We, my wife wanted to make sure she went and saw her son because you know she was getting on in years. She was in the 80s, and so we planned. We 
made that visit there. And I remember getting down at Chennai airport and my son saying, Appa, there's Tamil signs everywhere. <laughs> right? So it wasn't just about like whether it's being in Sri Lankan Tamil or for him, it was Tamil signs. It was mm. here. We were growing up in a Western world where you could, you know, he was being made fun of taking Tosa to school mm. for lunch because he loved his Tosa. But he goes there and here he is like, there's a whole new world. And then you start visiting all those temples and you realize, hey, so we went and saw this uh, uh, Notre Dame or whatever in England and all these places that were like built in 15 and 16 and they've been burned down in the, the ruins and stuff. And then you go to Tanjaur and there's this temple that was built in, you know, 1000, uh, 10,000 AD and it's still standing there and still in use, right? And everywhere you turn around, oh, there's that temple that's like, oh, it's, uh, you know, five, 600 years old. It's like a, a normal, it's like a candy bar in India, right? It's like, oh, these are, these are, and you realize that you come from a rich heritage. Oh. It isn't, uh, and you realize like Canada is only 150 years old, 175 years, we're not even 200 years old yet, right? Mm. So when you realize how the rich heritage that comes into being, because kids in the Western world are only learning the history of the, the I would say the more of the British empire, you yeah. know, since hey, not, nothing happened till, you know, Columbus went to America or uh, Vasco da Gama went to India, right? Yeah. But you realize that when you go there, there's much more to those things. When I talk to friends of mine about history from Africa, and I tell them stories of the Ashanti Empire and stories of the Oyo Empire. Oyo Empire, exactly. I also exactly. tell them that one of the oldest universities in the world is in Timbuktu. And one of the richest men at the time was Mansa Musa. And they, people don't understand it. They think, oh, really? I said, yes. But going back to the heritage of Tamils, I mean, you have a Tamilian in the White House now. I mean, how does that make you feel? You know, it, sh it shows you that people's talents it's not necessarily just a Tamilian. It's just that somebody who has the talent. These are people who have come and made this their home, right? As much as, you know, I'm claiming I'm a Tamil, like my kids would be more confidently tell you they're Tamil Canadian. Tamil is their base heritage, but they're Canadian. They would put Canada first, right? And I think I'm in the same boat now, right? You know, hey, this is the longest that I've lived in any given place. So this has become my home. And I'm willing to fight for the values of my home, right? And that's for the key thing. But we also have to recognize we don't have to give up the fact that, um, hey, you know, I'm Canadian now. So, you know, my Tamil heritage doesn't matter to me or we didn't make contributions to the world. Um, so I look at it and say, uh, you know, there is Tamil heritage, there is Tamil bravery, there's Tamil stories, right? When I look at one of my favorite things, and I always um, uh, push it out whenever I can, because that's what I grew up with, is whether it's the Panjatandra Kadas from um, the uh, Indian legends, like, you know, the Tamil stories, or it's the Anasi, the spider stories, right? Mm. Where the values and morals are taught. Um, uh, I used to have this funny thing when I first came, one of the uh, struggles I had in Canada, you know, the Western world says, hey, uh, Akin, let's go for lunch, right? We go for lunch, and everybody expects to split their check, <laughs> yeah. right? It was one of those things when I first came in, and we went for, one of my buddies asked me, let's go for lunch. We went for lunch. And then um, he paid his lunch, and he shared, and he said, oh, yeah, here's your bill. I, that was a shock to me, right? Yeah. 
So ever since then, I've come back and like even recently when one of the white guys I work with, he, you know, he's like, okay, we, I say, let's go for lunch. And Richard comes with me and, you know, I pay for his lunch. He goes, oh, Ram, you don't have to because we went there three, t- three times or something, you know. And I said, you know, Richard, there's more, you got, as much as we can learn some things from white people, there's such, you can learn from other people, yeah. from brown people. From It's a very important thing. It is. It's, it's hospitality. It is important because the number of times whereby it's just in our nature. I mean, Yoruba people, we're known to be welcoming. It's like yeah. when you want people, when you invite a person into the house, you're going yeah. to eat. We're you're not going just, to eat, yeah. We're not just going to give you sandwiches. No. We're not going to give you a cup of tea. I mean, to <laughs> each culture is own. We're going to yeah. cook for you. We're going to go out, go out of our way yeah. to make you welcome. Yeah. And even if I dropped unexpectedly, Right, you may not. Have, you may just have that one portion, but you know you you're going to give it to Ram before you even eat it, and that's those are some some of those things. Like our our you know the thing. I, one of the things I have is always. It's like I remember going to university with one of my uh, one of the guys, white guys here, and it was like, oh, I'm 18, I got to move out. Like I'm like he he was parent. His parents were thinking he was a failure because he hadn't moved out yet, and here I was fighting with my parents because all my relatives were calling me saying. Your parents are in Montreal and you moved to Toronto to go to university. What's going on? Is everything okay? Right? Is that whole, like, I struggle with my kids now. I'm like, when are you guys moving out? <laughs> right? And, but, the, but I mean, that's, those are the things we talk about. It's the difference in, uh, there's certain things that we can learn from each other and certain things that we need to integrate from each other. Brown African parents, we need to learn to give a, be less controlling of our children and what they should be doing, right? Because that's what we we've been taught is like, oh, you as parents, you need to control what your child does so that they will be successful. Um, but you know, they need to. And for us, success in some ways was like, hey, they need to have, they need to go to get a good education so they can have a good job that pays them a lot of money, right? We need to get that away and start learning um, to let our kids have the freedom to uh, follow happiness. Mm. It was a struggle I had with my son. Like you said, my colleague wife was very strong in that, um, you know, because my son at high school decided he was going to drop all his sciences. I'm like, what are you going to do? When you asked him, what are you going to do? Did you say that in a Canadian accent or a Tamil father accent? I, th- I think it's in a Tamil father accent. <laughs> that comes out in me. As much as I know, like, even though I had my battle with my father, I always worry about my son. I think it's that father role of also what we're indoctrinated with. But I always realize that money doesn't motivate my son. Um, that, you know, if he has five bucks, he's happy with five bucks. If he doesn't, he doesn't, right? Um, you know, with my daughter too, we have this joke with him because we go out, we're doing something outside and say, okay, let's pick up some food to go home. And which was answer will always be like, there's food in the fridge. Why are you wasting money? right and but then when we go we'll say okay you go home and eat we're not you know going home to eat we're picking up something we want right it's one of those battles but it's 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 a a struggle and then you know our kids again we have to fight our own biases that we come with yeah well we're coming to the end of the episode so what what advice would you give to those who find themselves in positions that they need uplifting I always say there is um it'll this it'll pass this too will pass right um so one of the things I learned when I 
um, remember I told you my um, wife's grandmother's uh, son. So my wife's uncle was a Swami. We we went and spent some time with him um, as a family um, for a week. And then just my son and I went and uh, spent time with him. He has this mode. He doesn't teach you anything. His mode is, hey, you have a question, ask me. Right? And then we used to have this, we would just sit around for hours and just talk about something. He's His ashram is one of those that he wakes up and he does his own prayers and whatever. Because you want to wake up and pray with me, that's fine. You don't want to wake up with me and pray? You came here to forget your worldly things, whatever. I'm not here to indoctrinate you. If you want to find something, you find something. So we, uh, so we used to have this this thing, and, and you know, in the Tamil culture, Ashanti would know this well. There's this period of your life when you have this sani following you around. This is a Saturday thing. We used to joke about it. Um, so it's supposed to be for a period of seven years when you go through your life. And then the first time I went there, apparently this sani was supposed to be following me around. And he looked at it, and so I said, "Hey, what can I do to get rid of this sani?" I'm not a big believer in this stuff. And anyway, but he so he said to me, he goes, bottom line, he goes, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. So I could tell you, you know, you should fast for 10 days and uh, eat one meal a day and stand upside down and whatever. And then your finger, get, your, your hand gets cut off. And then you're going to say, oh, my, my uh, life was supposed to be killed, but I got away with because of all these things I did. My, only my hand got cut off. He goes, no, your hand was originally supposed to cut off. That's what happened. And the next thing he said is, so it said, whatever happens to you, you, you can only control your emotion. You can't let other people control your emotion. And the bottom line is how you experience things. You have to learn to experience things. If you have control over something, then you would have control over it and done it. Like, so you want to change your TV to a different channel. You have control over it. You change it. If you don't have the remote control, you can't change it. You just have to watch it through. Right, but you saying, "Oh, what am I doing? What am I doing? Watching this thing, and getting yourself into a sense of despair is not going to help. It's just going to put you down. So you just have to accept it for what it is. This is what's playing in front of me, and do the best and navigate it as you can." Okay. Well, and on that note, we've come to the end of this episode, Ram. It has been a complete pleasure and honor talking to you about life, Nigeria, Canada. And then some. Thank you so much, Ram. How can people get in touch with you? Oh, uh, you know, one of the things I always tell people is here's my cell phone number. You know, call me on 647-222-4270. But don't expect me to answer it all the time unless I feel like it. <laughs> so people are like, you're giving your number out? Uh, as an activist, you know, I've given out my numbers several times on the radio and stuff because people want to know how to get in touch with you. Okay. I said, I will try and get back to you as much as possible. Uh, so hey or you know connect with me on facebook or um, i think that's the other social media that i monitor the most so text me and you know i'm in some meeting on there so like you you would have noticed i've already received a couple of calls with somebody asking about something but we will stay connected okay and on that note we come to the end of this episode of the swinging palm trees podcast until next time be well and pax vobiscum